the next few weeks, we're going to kind of just be walking through the end of the book of John. Um, the, the encounters that we're looking at are kind of all in a row. And so if you're looking for a space to be reading in your own just devotional life, that might be a good place um, to, to kind of slow walk, maybe one day a week or something. Or do whatever you want, because I don't like telling people what to do too much. Do you have a question to start us off? Um, when you think of Jesus, when is Jesus in his life? When you're thinking of Jesus, when you're praying to Jesus, or you, whatever it is, when is it? There's probably some people in the world who think of uh, sweet baby Jesus, you know, or, or little, like, Jesus in the temple when he's a kid. There's probably some really creative, imaginative people who think of the first 30 years that we don't know a lot about, and they imagine what that was like, and they imagine what Jesus was like. Maybe they relate to Jesus at that time. I think most of the time we think of the three years that we know a lot about. When we think of Jesus, we think of this space and time where Jesus is teaching and living with the disciples and living with everybody and miraculous kingdom of God is breaking through, right? Or we think of Jesus on the cross or in that holy week that we just, we just passed. I think a lot of times, especially if we're dealing with the weight of our own sin or the weight of the world's sin, we think of Christ on the cross. Often that comes with some comfort that he went through that for us, sometimes even other things. Maybe we'll feel some shame or some guilt or something like that. Sometimes we even think about Jesus in, in the tomb, right? Like, I, I think of this, like, it's weird that Jesus was actually, like, dead. And, like, dead, dead. Like, he, he wasn't doing some magic tricks behind the scene. He was just, like, death did its job and then didn't, Right? And then there's the, the time where he is, he is risen that begins with like our Easter last week. And then there's the time when he's ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. And we're waiting upon all of the completion of everything, this grand narrative that God has done. There's all these different times. And I think it's a helpful exercise for us to pay attention to what time we're relating to Jesus in. It can actually open you up to some things that God might want to do within you. And in this next stretch of time, together, we are going to talk about relating to Jesus as he is risen. This is the time in the church calendar that the church has long called Eastertide. And it's the season after Easter where people encountered the risen Jesus. And I had a professor this Tuesday who gave me just great comfort and stuff because there, there's a little bit of internal pressure on Easter. It's the day that Jesus rose, right? That we, that we celebrate that together. I want everybody in the world to experience that. When you go to bed on Easter night as a pastor, you're like, wow, that's the sermon I gave that was supposed to help everybody in the room. Good night. That's, that's all I could come up with. Okay. And Tuesday, my professor, who's also, she's a pastor as well, she was very gracious to, to us and reminding us that on that first Easter, not everybody knew that 
Jesus was risen. We talked last week. They were on the road to Emmaus. Maybe he, they had heard the rumor, but they didn't really know. Not everybody got like text alerts on their phone or anything like that. There, there wasn't the, the news coming out. Jesus, over time, right, over weeks, went and met people, went and encountered them. And, and this week, I have felt the busyness we've all felt. I've felt the fatigue that we all felt. But I've also felt this hope that, like, maybe in this season, we will all really encounter this risen Jesus, too. And as Jesus met everybody in the individual ways that they kind of needed to, and then collectively in a way that the church began, Jesus hasn't changed. So maybe we'll have the same thing now. Maybe even little us right here in old Louisville, will experience this risen Jesus. Maybe the people that we love will experience Jesus in this this Easter tide. And so that's what I'm praying for us and hopeful about. Not that there will be any clever words of mine or, or Kat's or Rob's through the series, but that we'll just, in profound ways, in simple ways, in beautiful ways, we'll just meet Jesus again, the risen one. So we're starting in John 20, verse 11, and we're going to just slow wander through a couple verses. Uh, I'm going to read them one or two at a time, but we'll start just with verse 11. Uh, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. A a little bit of context. If if you remember, this is when Mary had gone, seen the stone was rolled away, went and told the disciples. By the way that it's written, we can assume that it's John and Peter, and they're really competitive with each other, and it matters who's faster. Uh, And John, the one whom Jesus loved, is like, well, I beat him because I'm faster. So humanity's really changed. And and the, the male, the disciples are like running to and fro, like just running, right? And Mary gets there, and she weeps, and she just stays put. The disciples run back to go find out what they should do and go talk to others, and I'm not saying they're wrong, but it's interesting that she just stays right there and weeps. So I kind of looked into this a little bit. Like, what do people think of this? And there have been a couple people through church history, particularly Calvin, who was really like, she was bad and wrong and and, and all this. But but most people have, have looked at the original language and all this and and said that this was her like most abiding act like when Jesus said abide in me that's what this was we've talked a lot about attachment to God right this is Mary's act of attachment to Jesus it's the appropriate place for her to be her savior died and she was there to do the, the deeds of, of, of all the spices and all the burial routine. But when we look in her language, it doesn't change that he's still Savior. He's still Master. He's still Lord. It just doesn't look the way she thought it would. And the appropriate response when something that important doesn't look the way we thought that it would, the appropriate response is grief, is weeping. It's okay. We talk a lot about it, and we're not going to live here for the rest of our life, but it is okay for us, in you, what has died. That you, the appropriate response would be for you 
to grieve, for you to weep for it. What, what hasn't happened the way that you thought? What relationships aren't where you thought they would be? Where did you think God would step in when you prayed and you sacrificed and you did this and that, and then it didn't happen that way, and you're not even necessarily mad at God, but you're just like, what am I to do with this? What is that? Sometimes we outrun that. Sometimes people with microphones say that, that you did something wrong, and here's the two steps to really fix it. What I see from Scripture is the thing to do is to sit still in that. And if you're weeping, then weep. And if you're grieving, the most appropriate thing to do is grieve. Y'all know my family has gone through stuff that I don't wish on my family. I don't wish on your family. It's not all resolved. It's not all perfect notes. And the best thing I can do is grieve that before Jesus. The best thing I can do is say, like, okay, Lord, I still love you, but I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm not going to fake that I get it. I'm not going to wrap this all up in a pretty little point so it's resolved. It's not resolved. And God's still good. But sometimes we need to grieve. And, and the goal is not that we just mourn forever. The goal, the hope, is that we can encounter Jesus in that very space, even if the Jesus that we believed in died. So for Mary, the Jesus that she believed in was the same one that so many others did, that he was going to restore Israel right then, right there, in a political move that definitely had religious implications and all of that, but in a way that really meant that Rome didn't get to kill him. And then the Jesus that she believed in died. For you and for me, I think if we were honest and we believed in Jesus for more than a little bit, the Jesus we once believed in has died. And there's a better one available. There's a truer one, a clearer picture of who Jesus is. But sometimes we need to grieve who he's not, and then hope to encounter the risen Jesus there in that space. The very next thing that we see there is that she pokes her head around, right? She bends over to look inside of the tomb. She's exploring her grief. She's exploring what isn't there and what is there. That's a healthy thing for you to do. This is not fun. I get it. That's probably part of why our church is always about 10 people, because we're saying this, right? But it's the helpful, hopeful needed thing that we don't do enough of let's do this work within us so that we can have more of jesus in our life let's do this work so we can mature spiritually as as people and really be discipled here then it says she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of jesus had been lying one at the head and one at the feet and they said to her woman why are you weeping she said to him, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. A couple things really quick on this. She's, she's talking to angels. I don't do that on the, on the regular. They talk to her, and she gives an honest answer back. Why are you weeping? I'm weeping because they've taken my Lord. That is wild. So there's this, this guy that I once got to sit with and have lunch with, actually at an event for Matt Brown's organization. Uh, this guy had been a missionary his whole life and kind of written some books and had some interesting stories. And I'll never forget that he said that in the United States, P 
people expect to meet God through Scripture, and God is gracious enough to meet them through Scripture. And he's being very sincere. We, we often elevate Scripture as if it's the third member of the Trinity, and God works with our understanding and then meets us there. But his point was that God is willing to meet us through anything, through nature, through relationships, through angels. And somehow in this text, Mary is open to angels. If it's like noon today and I'm getting ready for the bats game, I can't promise you I'm open to angels. If two were waiting in my Chevy Equinox, one in the front seat, one in the back, and they're like, hey, Matt, where are we going? I'd be like, straight to the hospital. (laughs) But she's open. And I think there's something to that. I think there's something to us knowing what we are open to and what we aren't, and then tiptoeing our feet in the waters of other things, right? For some of us, the scariest thing in the world is more community and us being open and honest in that community. At the same time, one of the most healing things in the world is community and the community that you can be open and honest in. And if we cannot imagine experiencing Jesus there, I don't think we will. Not because Jesus isn't there, but Jesus is pretty gracious. But if we can imagine and we can desire and even wonder if we'll experience Jesus there, more likely than not, we will. I go walk Iroquois Park quite a bit because I live over by it, and it is a wonder that when I expect to feel the presence of God, you know what I do? I feel the presence of God because I'm good at it and because I'm paid to talk in a mic? No. It's because we often, God is willing to meet us wherever wherever we're willing to meet God. Now, I'm not necessarily in the ways and not, I, I'm not giving this formula, but I am saying like, okay, what if we opened up more? What if we allowed a little more wonder in our life, even into our grief? Because that's what we're seeing here. She looks in as she's grieving, as she's mourning. These angels talk and she talks back. And we get to verse 14. When she said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Okay, you, you all know even last week. I, I'm fascinated by how Jesus appears. When he's risen, like, he, he can be whatever. And he comes looking like a gardener. I don't think in a garden with, like, tombs, I don't think there's anything that looks more ordinary, probably, than a gardener. I mean, maybe a flower. But if you're going to be like a human, like, a gardener is as, as simple, as ordinary as you're going to look. I think it's beautiful that he takes on that. And and he's not putting on a costume, but Jesus just looks so common that Mary assumes, well, that's that's someone who takes care of these grounds. And Mary doesn't recognize Jesus. And again, I think this is a little bit like last week. I don't think this is because Jesus is in camouflage with, with like a nose and a mustache kind of thing. I think it's just God 
is doing something with, with her eyes. I also don't think she's expecting to see Jesus in the gardener. And what she really wants at that time, it's kind of beautiful. What she wants is just to know where Jesus' body is so that she can, you know, she can do the ceremonial things that need to be done as an honor. That's a way to honor somebody who's passed, right? That's what she's wanting to do. She doesn't even know what's being offered to her. And Jesus doesn't even correct her. He just calls her by a name. Now, in English, we, we kind of, we miss this. We miss some things in English. First, he, he doesn't say Mary. He says Miriam. At other points, she's called Mary. But like kind of their, their name is Miriam. You know, we've talked about this before. You sometimes have names with certain people. Growing up, I was Maddie. And so I go back to Minneapolis and I see family and they call me Maddie. And like that feels like home. There's something to that. There's something to when my cousin says, Maddie, I just, I just, I feel something there, you know? And here's this gardener that Mary just hopes knows where the body is. And I don't even know if Mary's looking at the gardener. But the gardener calls her this familiar name, Miriam. And as soon as she hears it, she knows who it is and calls him by the name that she always called him, Rabboni. And there's this connection and this depth and this beauty that she didn't even know that was possible. This experience of the risen Jesus that she didn't even know could happen. It's beautiful. But a couple questions I want to ask you and me in this is what What's the name that you call God? Like when you pray or when you think about God. What's the name that you maybe feel the most resistance to, the most distance from? But also, what's the one that you feel closest to? A lot of people either feel close or distant to praying to God the Father, and that's a lot of times because of our relationships here. I know some people who, like, I think it's 67 times in Scripture, God is given uh, more feminine qualities. And so there's people who find much more comfort talking to God as, as the mother of all. Some people pray really well praying to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit. I, I've told you all for the last probably two years, when I think of Jesus and I think of the name Emmanuel, that God is with us, that's the one that, like, it just moves me. If I realize that God is with me, okay, I can do today, whatever today is. And so it's kind of a formal name, but that's the one that I pray when I really feel that I want to be close to God. I'll just ask, like, Emmanuel, I know you're with me, so I'm going to say it. So something to just think of, what, what name? And if you don't know, try some different one out and pay attention to your body and pay attention to your emotions. But there's another question in there. And what's the name that God calls you? Does God call you by a, a familiar family name? Or does God call you daughter? Does God call you son? Does God call you beloved? 
what is it? And if you don't know, that's okay. But maybe part of us wondering and part of us having courage is maybe we ask God, how do you see me? Because we're really aware of how we see us and we're often semi-aware of how other people say us, see us, at least like the negative parts of how other people see us. But it would be very helpful for us to know how the one who created us sees us. And we can know some things from through scripture and, and God can highlight some of those things to your heart, but we can also just ask as we go for a walk or as we sit on our porch or our deck, like, God, what do you call me? How do you see me? Because there would be some actual, like, healing that would happen in us if we started to align the way we saw ourselves with how God saw us. I think that's what we see here. She encounters the risen Jesus as he calls her a name that really is familiar. Not familiar because everybody calls her this, but familiar because Jesus calls her this. And she responds with this name that she always calls out to him. So there's this next verse. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me. And that little phrase has gotten a little confusing for folks, right? The, the very next thing he says is, because I have not ascended to the Father. And, and so some folks have thought, like, oh, does that mean his, his body's like, woo, and your hands go, like, straight through him? And there's something. No, it, if, if we know, and I'm not trying to be geeky here, but if we know Greek, we know that's not what it is. Because what the word means is, you cannot stay here holding on to me. It means that she is holding on to him, but that is not the permanent state they can belong in. You can't spend the rest of your existence holding me in this garden. Because I have somewhere I have to go. I have to go to be the father. And you have somewhere that you have to go. And I think for us, that is a powerful thing. Because I think there are many of us who wish that we could just spend all day, every day, in the presence of God, fully there, holding on. Because that feels safer and better than anything else. And if that's you, I would say, I agree. I think that sounds fantastic. Jesus says really clearly, you can't just stay here. You can't. We can't. We can visit here. We can experience Jesus that way. But we can't just stay here because Jesus needs to ascend to the Father and the rest of this needs to, this story needs to be resolved, right? This grand story act needs to come to an end so finally this restoration and redemption of everything has to happen and that doesn't happen if we just stand there just me clinging to Jesus Jesus has to go be Jesus but the other thing that Jesus tells Mary here I think is profound and beautiful he says go to my brothers Think of what that must sound like. When trouble came, these guys scattered like the cops at a house party. They show up and everybody runs, right? Nobody's around. If you remember, like, Peter's around a fire and, and, and this, this little girl was like, hey, aren't you one of them? And like, no, no, don't, don't you talk funny like the disciples? No, I don't. I'm very proper. Leave me alone. I mean, they just keep running. They're terrified. And I don't blame them because I'm terrified by things much smaller than this. 
than all of my hopes and dreams shattering. I'm terrified of much smaller things. But they're terrified, and they run, and they don't know what's happening, and they feel like someone stole Jesus' body, and they are afraid that they're next. You know, that Rome and the, and the leaders are all going to come and round up Jesus' people as well. This is a very real possibility. That was their future. And Jesus says, go to my brothers. All that running, all that fear, all that distrust, all that everything doesn't change who they are. They're my brothers. He could have said, go to your brothers or go to those guys. That, I, I've done that sometimes. When my kids are being sweet, they are my kids. When they're not being sweet, I'll be like, Nikki, your daughter, Anna knows. She's mine when she's sweet. She's, she's Anna's when she, or she's Nikki's when she's trouble. And here we have some, some, all of that kind of stuff. And Jesus says, go, go to my, my brothers. And as we go forward in John and into Acts, we'll see that they didn't know if they were still Jesus' brothers. They didn't know if they had lost that. But I think for you and for me this week, we get these moments to, to hug on, to be in the presence of Emmanuel, to call out to the name that, that we know intimately, hear from God the name that he calls us. But we don't get to stay there. Why? Because we have, we have God's brothers and sisters out here who don't really know that they're God's brothers and sisters or who the church has told them you're not. And we get to go reaffirm, no, no, you are exactly who God said that you are. Or who you once believed that you were. Or who you once hoped that you were. And not to go tell them our version of the good news or anything like that, but just to affirm within them. Yeah. You're God's sister. You're Jesus' brother. And this is what Mary does in light of the resurrection. We didn't get into all of who Mary is and who the church has villainized Mary to be or, or what. We, didn't, we don't even need all that, right? We could have coffee and talk through all that. That's, it'd be fun. But there's enough in this to challenge my life. There's enough in this to inspire my life. And hopefully you're, you're finding the same. Let's, let's pray together here.